Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, Danny Moses. As a matter of fact, Danny Moses and I had a great conversation on the other side of the break, so stick around for that. But what's important to point out is Anastasia Amoroso is back with us. Now, we were talking, Anastasia. This is either your third time or fourth time with us. True or false? Uh, true. In the 304 <laughs> bracket, for sure. It's good Without question. And it's an <laughs> honor to have you back. Now, indulge me for a second, Dan, please. You going to indulge me? Yeah. We're, we're, we're usually indulging <laughs> in you guys. 1956. Can we go back in time? Yeah. 1956. The Dodgers were in Brooklyn. They were, actually. It's pretty good. The Yankees probably won the World Series because that's what they want to do at the time. But there was a film. And in this film, there was the beautiful Ingrid Bergman. You familiar with Ingrid Bergman? Anastasia, you know the name? No. No. That's okay. It's not. You don't need to know who that is. Helen Hayes was in this movie. And of course... Yul Brenner was in this movie. The name of the movie was Anastasia. And Yul Brenner was in The Magnificent Seven. He was actually the lead of The Magnificent Seven, although Steve McQueen probably stole the movie. Now, I mentioned that because I went back and looked at your Twitter, and I know this from our shows together. In August of last year, you talked about the stock potential and AI and all those things not being priced in. You were extraordinarily bullish in a space that a lot of people, including myself, had some apprehensions about. So I want to entitle this podcast Anastasia's Crystal Ball, because quite frankly, she had it. So it's great to have you back. So speak to that, because you obviously saw something that a lot of people didn't see. That was a phenomenal intro. Yes, it was. Thank you very much for that, and thank you for going back in time. Uh, and yes, I think that's right. I have been quite bullish on artificial intelligence. And the reason why back in August, and probably even still true today, I was saying that I don't think the true full potential of artificial intelligence is priced in, because analysts typically bake into their models what they can see in front of them. And what they can see in front of them is this quarter, next quarter, maybe a quarter after that. But what they're not willing to bake in is the full multi-year potential of artificial intelligence because we know the forecasts, they're aggressive. We know that some of the revenues and TAMs are going to double or triple, but that's still an uncertainty mm-hmm. and therefore that's not reflected in the models. But one thing that I thought was really interesting when just prior to coming here, I looked at our artificial intelligence screener. And what I was looking at back in August was to what extent did the earnings revisions get revised up back in August? And they really weren't for anything outside of NVIDIA. But if you look at it today, you do have more companies in that AI screener that have seen upwards earnings revisions. And look, maybe some of it has been due to actual AI potential. Maybe some of it has been due to sort of the rebound that we're seeing in semiconductors and the Taiwan semis Mm -hmm. talking about sort of an upgrade in demand potentially this year. But bottom line is these companies, I think, are prime candidates for revisions higher in their earnings. And that's what's not priced in. So the timing of that call, what you're talking about in the summer is interesting because we had just come in a a high in the NASDAQ. We had just had Microsoft introduce pricing for Copilot. We had Adobe for Firefly. We had a bunch of these sort of software AI-enabled products that 
were just launched and just yeah. had the pricing. So it was probably too soon at that point. And really, though, to me, Anastasia, this quarter's guidance and next quarter are going to be really important for a lot of those companies, especially because they have really benefited from multiple expansion, right? If you haven't had earnings revisions higher, but you had your stock price go higher, then it's multiple expansion. It's the belief that all that's going to come. So talk to me how we could hit a sort of rough patch over the next, call it, quarter or so if some of these sorts of rosy, optimistic outlooks for the TAMs and their ability to capture them right now don't materialize, let's say, in the next few months, the next couple of quarters. Yeah, I, I think the area that's most susceptible to that would probably be the semiconductor space. Mm-hmm. Because again, talk about NVIDIA, for example, you have seen a massive earnings revisions already for some of the other semiconductors. You have seen that exuberance as well. And so you've got a twofold driver of upside there that's occurred so far, which is multiple expansion, but you've also got earnings expectations are pretty much up here as well. So to the extent that semiconductor companies don't deliver, I think that's a twofold risk. But when I look at Microsoft, for example, or Google, or Meta, or any of the others, I think there is that multiple expansion, that exuberance about artificial intelligence, but it's not necessarily what is baked into earnings. I actually think for some of those software companies, we can have potential upside in earnings because I don't know if you've used Copilot. I don't know if you've used Microsoft Bing recently, but from my perspective, it is a game changer of how efficient you can be in terms of conducting research, summarizing financial news. I asked Microsoft Bing the other day, give me the top three things that the Fed officials have been saying recently Mm -hmm. about Fed rate cuts. Here it is in three bullet points, a summary of presumably multitudes of articles. So work that could have taken us maybe an hour to Mm -hmm. compile otherwise. So I think that's a game changer. And sooner or later, a lot of consumers, I think sooner actually, are going to realize that. And if AI is a shortcut to productivity, Who doesn't want to be more productive? That was going to be my point. So obviously, you're talking about productivity there. And theoretically, if things are more productive, margins should improve, and that should make its way into earnings. And I think I have a view on what earnings are going to be this year. I think they're going to disappoint. I think you have an entirely different view. So what is your outlook? We're going to talk about your 2024 outlook, but specifically about earnings. What are you seeing? Yeah, look, if you look at the earnings for 2024, $244 is what consensus is expecting. And that's been somewhat stable. If we do, my base case, is if we have a soft landing plus the rate cuts from the Fed, I think that 244 number is either solid or maybe even conservative. Mm-hmm. That's my base case. Now, one counterpoint to that is we have not really revised down that earnings number. And if GDP last year grew close to 2% or in some cases 5%, if this year it slows down to one5 you could some could have some potential down, downward earning revisions. But if that does get offset by rate cuts, I think that number is pretty solid. With rate cuts being pushed out right now, there yeah. was a near certainty that we were going to have a 25 basis point cut at the March meeting. Now that sits at about 50-50. We have a 10-year U.S. Treasury yield that's up from, what, 3.78% just a few weeks ago. Now, as we're speaking, 4.13%. Um, it's interesting because when you talk about stocks and you look at the S&P 500 where it is right now versus a yield that's 4.13 or possibly mm-hmm. moving higher, if the these cuts get pushed out, we're going to have a 10-year settle at a higher pace. Like we, we can all agree with that. And then at some point, if you do have that expected 10% EPS growth for 2024 built into your model, it probably starts feeling a bit high. And then, so I'm just curious, like how you think about that, because Guy and I also looked at a stat this morning from John Butters in his earnings insight analysis, and he's talking about blended net profit margins for the S&P 500 in yeah. Q4 2023. 10.9% expected. This is currently the lowest of the index since Q4 2020. I thought that was a really interesting stat. This is at a time where yields, while they've come in a lot, they were only above these levels for a matter of weeks, right? The 10-year. We're seeing the dollar find a little bit of footing. We're seeing crude find a bottom in and around 70 or so. We're seeing a whole host of other inputs as it relates to shipping starting to pick back up again. So I wonder, that stat on margins could be really telling, especially if we do have GDP that's closer to that 1.5% as opposed to, let's say, the 2% right. we've been averaging this year. It could be telling, or it could be the bar that's set too low. If we do actually have... See what have... she just did there, Guy? <laughs> yeah, see, going... see what she just did Counter- there? Point, counterpoint. Yeah, it's just own me, basically. Is it, that, that's, that's the purpose here, yeah. right? Yeah. But if we go back to one of the points you made, Dan, about what about yields? And what if we keep pushing out the Fed rate cuts? Mm-hmm. And what if the 10-year keeps going up? There's a couple of points that we'd make about that. First of all, between now and March, as close as it seems, it's sort of an eternity when it comes to data 
data points. It's inflation re- reports, it's jobs reports, it's more retail reports. And what the markets are trying to do right now is test the conviction around each one of those data points and what that means for the Fed. I happen to think that the Fed cares about one thing at this point and one thing only, and that is the trajectory of inflation. So if we have not just the core CPI number, but the core PCE, the one that they really care about, if we have that number continue to come down between now and March, I'm still not convinced that March is off the table. And in fact, when you look at the core PCE, three-month or six-month annualized measure, that is trending towards 2%. That's one reason why I think 10-year Treasury yields can actually be supported around this current levels. The other thing, Dan, when you think about the fair value of the 10-year, it's about growth, it's about inflation, it's about the policy expectations. And of course, that's why it's been going up recently. We've been repricing the policy expectations. But with all those measures, the fair value of the 10-year Treasury is somewhere around these current levels. Mm -hmm. So what I actually like since the beginning of the year, Guy and Dan, you both know we came into the year, technical indicators were extremely overbought. The 10-year was probably extremely stretched to the downside. And we've corrected some of that. You look at that RSI today, it's not as overbought as it was. And you look at the 10 years closer to fair value. So I like this as a better starting point than on January 2nd. A couple things that you like this year in terms of pullbacks, and this caught my eye. LQD, which is a corporate grade bond ETF, and that is very interest rate sensitive. The other one is the HYG, which is obviously the high yield credit ETF. LQD was a disaster <laughs> late 22 into 23, sort of found its footing. As rates started coming down, I think it's not coincidence that the LQD sort of bounced. You like both those on pullbacks, which is fine. My question to you is almost by definition, that means you're probably not going to see a credit event at all this year. Thoughts on that? That has to be the base case for buying LQD and HYG. And no, I don't think we see a credit event in investment grade or high yield. And I say that, for example, because when you look at the credit outstanding, and I look at it two ways, how much of it is floating rate so that those companies are having to shoulder the burden of floating rate, obviously high yield and investment grade, most of that, all of that is fixed. It's only the leverage loan category that's floating rate. So they don't have to worry about that higher cost of financing on the bulk of their notional outstanding. Now, for a portion of that, of course, that is going to mature this year at higher rates that needs to be refinanced at higher rates than in years past. But that's about 6 or 7% of notional outstanding. For the U.S. government, it's about 29% of notional outstanding that needs to be refied this year. So I'm probably more concerned about the state of U.S. Treasury than I am about the state of corporate balance sheets. Well, let me jump in there because I think our debt number just surpassed $34 trillion. And it's been moving, you know, exponential is a little hyperbolic, but it's been moving pretty rapidly. Rapidly, the growth of five trillion increments is getting smaller and smaller. So the move from 34 to 36 is probably a lot faster than people think. China just reported debt to GDP approaching 300%. We're probably, depending on the numbers, 135%. That's concerning, but am I overly concerned by both those numbers? It's concerning. And I'm actually with you that this is more concerning than it has been probably for the past 10 years. You go back to 2011, and we had this very similar debate about that. But today, the reason why it's more concerning is because interest rates are not zero. Mm -hmm. Interest rates are 5%, and maybe they're going to go to 3.8%, but they're not zero. So all of a sudden, you have a much greater pile of debt that you have to refinance at a much higher cost. So when I look at the debt service as percent of revenues, back in 2011, 2013, it was something like 6% of revenues. Today, it's close to 15, Mm -hmm. and it's on track to 21. So we have to pay out almost a quarter of our revenues if we remain on this trajectory in interest rate payments. So that squeezes a lot of other parts of the budget. So we're not there yet. So the concern is there, but we're not there yet. And I do think there's things that we can do. Taxes. Well, I was going to say, it's a (laughs) numerator denominator thing, right? And expenses. It seems as though the debt problem is they're going to continue to spend. So that... so in order to get that back in line... Well, that's a lever too. <laughs> right. To Revenue has to grow. So you just said it. So there's a lot of things that are, I would say, market unfriendly to try to get that back in line. Yes? Yes. By the way, very friendly to municipal bonds, potentially. Mm-hmm. But yes, unfriendly because, look, next year... and. I think this is going to be a big topic of the election discussions we're going to have this year. Next year, the Trump era tax cuts expire if nothing else is done about that. So do we let those lapse? Do we extend them? Of course, if you roll back to the prior level of tax rates, that would raise revenue. But do we do that or not? You know, there's certainly ways to mitigate the budget deficit. But I think it has to be a big part of the discussion. 
The reason why this bodes well for munis, if the market forces the government to eventually do something about this mm -hmm. sooner rather than later, that likely means higher taxes and less spending. And who actually benefits from that tax-free munis do? And by the way, the shape of your municipalities' finances is great. The rainy day funds have been accumulated. Mm -hmm. Many states are running budget surpluses, not deficits. So... I go long munis. So we're early in this kind of Q4 earnings season. We've had a lot of banks over the last few weeks. And I know that you spent a lot of time in your career at one of the biggest banks uh, on yes. the street. And now you have a level of flexibility that I think is really unique at iCapital. You get to, to talk to a whole host of different investors and all different walks of life. What were some of the takeaways that you had from just glancing at some of the bank earnings and some of the commentary that they had to say? And is there anything you'd want to extrapolate maybe further on into the year or maybe across some other sectors they've yet to report so far in this earnings cycle. Yeah, obviously it's been not a great start to the earnings season, particularly for banks. And we saw a lot of negative surprises. But speaking specifically of banks, I do think that it gets better rather than worse for banks as the year progresses. And in fact, this quarter, the financial sector is likely to deliver about minus 3% earnings growth for the last quarter. But that eventually does start to accelerate and to turn positive. But if you think about the fundamental drivers for banks, let's take rates, for example. Rates going up was a big headwind for banks in terms of deposit betas and in terms of mark-to-market -market on some of their balance sheets. If that goes the other way and rates actually start to decline, yields go down, that's a positive for the banking sector. The other takeaway is we have seen delinquencies obviously pick up, defaults pick up, and that's been a headwind. But I think banks provision for that. But if we do land this economy mm -hmm. and if we do cut rates, maybe you don't have to provision quite as much. And the last one, we're still sitting here waiting for it, but capital markets activity. Mm -hmm. We've had this uptick in IPO activity in the fall. M&A volume started to pick up. But if the pent-up demand for exits does actually get unleashed in 2024, that's great for banks. You can't talk about banks without talking about commercial real estate. This is anecdotal, and I'm not looking to play stock market. But for example, Simon Properties has rallied about 40% mm -hmm. since October-ish. And that's, again, it's not coincidental that rates have gone from 5% down to 380, as Dan mentioned earlier. So I think that's part of the equation. But I don't think things have necessarily gotten better just through the lens of the stocks. But I think commercial real estate is a possible area of concern for you this year as well. It is a possible uh, area of concern. And look, it has been for the last year. There's over $5 trillion of commercial real estate debt outstanding. So when you size up the debt piles, it's definitely up there. And a lot of commercial real estate properties finance themselves at 3.5%. And if you have something like $1.2 trillion of real estate debt come due and you have to refi at 6.5%, on the surface, that's a big concern. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have been thinking about it on the surface. But when you dig down deeper and you say, what if they did have to go back to the market and refi at 6.5%, Guess what? 90% of commercial real estate properties can actually do that and still have an interest rate coverage ratio above one and a quarter. It is a concern, but I don't think that just because you have this wall of maturities, every single one of those things is going to have to default and can't refi. And then look, obviously, office is where the pain is. 17 or 18% vacancy rate, mm -hmm. but that's not all the commercial real estate. And in fact, that's about 15% of CRA outstanding, 16% of maturities. And when I look, going back down to the banks, when I look at the banks, it's maybe 4 or 5% of their exposure, different for regionals, but for the big ones. Yeah, so it's interesting when we go back and we think about that kind of Silicon Valley Bank and, and the regional banking crisis that we had last real March, April or so. On the other side of that, once the programs were put in place, once these banks were put in tidy little spaces, spots and everything. The focus was on commercial real estate and the outstanding debt and the exposure. And then obviously the move in interest rates was something that was making the problems worse on, on bank balance sheets. And so a lot of folks just got really hunkered down on the notion there was going to be some sort of credit event. It was likely to be with yeah. never happened. Okay. So here we are now. We're almost anniversarying like the Silicon Valley Bank crisis here. What's something that you think, I just mentioned debt to GDP. We have all these geopolitical hotspots around the world. There's plenty of areas that could cause inflationary pressures not too different than what we saw in the beginning of 2022 with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If you look at what's going on in the Middle East and the Red Sea and the potential in and around Taiwan, okay? Are these things that are on your radar or are they something that did, did what happened in 2022 end up being transitory? And I know that sounds glib in a way, but here we are two years later and we retraced a lot of that. And there actually hasn't been a whole heck of a lot of economic pain right. other than the S&P going down in 2022 
to a little Coming more than 20%. Right back up. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Look, I think it would be pretty silly to sit here and not think about the risks after the Fed just raised interest rates by five and a half percentage points and kept it there for a period of time. So this is why we went through the exercise of studying where are the debt piles and who is likely to default. So the other areas of concern that I would add to that is there's a lot of money that was raised by venture capital funds in 2021 and put to work in 2021 at 2020 and 2021 valuation peaks in early 2022 as well. And it's all fine and good while you have the funding. And when you raise a fund, when you raise a funding round, maybe it lasts you 12 months, 18 months, or if you reduce the cash burn, maybe you extend that. But how long can you extend that? And how many of these companies that got funded at peak valuations in 2021 have to fundraise again in this environment? And what are the chances they're actually going to get funding? Because VCs have not Mm -hmm. been fundraising with investors. So I think that's where the pocket of pain is likely to be. And that's where we're starting to see bankruptcies. VC-backed companies, PE-backed company bankruptcies have really surged back to uh, COVID levels. But the thing I would say, Dan, and by the way, there's going to be defaults in some of the private equity, private credit loans that have been taken out. But somebody said this to me, somebody who's been in the government and who studied crises before. That's an understatement, by the way. But that person said that there will be tears, Mm -hmm. there will be pain, but in pockets of the market and not systemic. And I think that's exactly the point is there will be venture capital uh, funds that have to take significant losses. There will be institutional and individual investors that will lose money as a result of that. But is it 2008-like where that actually impacts every single investor, every single consumer? No, I don't think so. U.S. economy is driven by the consumer. As long as people have jobs, as long as they feel okay about things, they will spend money. We saw it in retail sales earlier this week. The unemployment rates suggest that there is not a problem whatsoever, still an extraordinarily tight labor market. But then you see 10 months worth of revisions in terms of the jobs that comes out. At a certain point, the rubber hits the road, I think. We've seen a swath of layoffs across a number of different industries, but again, not manifesting itself in the absolute number. Are you concerned about the labor market going forward at all? I'm concerned about the consumer kind of running out of uh, excess capacity to spend. And we'll see how that translates into the labor market. But when I look at the personal savings rate, it is back to pre-pandemic lows. It's not 17, 18, or in some cases, 30% like it was before. So we've spent down our savings. So there's not as much to spend going forward. There's the other measure of excess savings for the consumer that's also declining. I do think that as bankruptcies pile up as defaults happen, as the tears and pain gets absorbed by parts of the economy, hiring is obviously going to slow. And so that maybe tempers wage growth and so forth. But when I put all those things together, I think they dampen the sentiment, dampen the mood. But guy, you look at the number of job openings relative to the unemployment rate, you still have mm-hmm. a lot of job openings. And we've corrected that very, very top, but we're still, again, above pre-pandemic levels. So we need to get those job openings down, more in balance. And I think then maybe we can start to worry about the labor market. It's interesting because it seems like nobody's particularly worried about the labor market, especially that we haven't had a tick above 4% unemployment and you know since things got better during the pandemic or towards the end of it. Some of the headlines I see, and I'm going to key off of what you just said, there is going to be a mountain of bankruptcies in the private world that coming from these companies that were funded, let's say, in 2021. And a lot of VCs right now are actually would be happy for companies to close up and give whatever money they have back. But the flip side of that is that there's a headline this morning that Google CEO or Alphabet CEO, they're going to keep firing throughout the course of this year. Throw into what we started the conversation with, the productivity of AI, that won't make it much better, if you will. So I suspect at some point this year, we will have an unemployment rate over 4%. What the knock-on effects are, I don't know. And I'm curious, do you think there's anything lurking out there that could actually cause a precipitous spike in unemployment? Do you know what I mean? Would it have to be something geopolitical? What would cause a slowdown in the U.S. to get towards recessionary levels, I guess, is really what I'm asking. The Fed staying at these level of rates. A lot of what we talked about has been predicated on the Fed easing policy in 2024. But if they stay at five and a half percent, if they really push the rate at five and a half further into the year, then that wall of maturities that I talked about is going to become more and more painful for a lot of companies. And I think that's what eventually does cause a slowdown. Then to think about it more through a wonky kind of economic lens, you start looking at where the level of real interest rates is relative to the so-called neutral rate for the economy. And typically, Dan, what causes a recession is when you have the real interest rates sufficiently above the neutral rate for a period of time. If you look at the chart, that's what happened in 1999. That's what happened in 2007. 
happen. And that's when you end up with a recession bar. A lot of what I'm talking about today is predicated on the Fed doing something, having an easing bias. What would the cause, though, for the Fed to keep that rate that high? Because they obviously don't want to put the, the economy in a bad recession, but by the same means, they don't want to be asleep at the wheel with inflation picking back up, right? right? So do they run the risk of actually just missing their window to adjust the rate properly? I think if it extends into the second half of the year, the answer is, is likely yes. Again, my base case today is the reason for the Fed to cut rates is because they raise rates sufficiently high to where now there's a gap between the Fed funds rate and the core PC inflation. And the gap is sufficient. And, you know, if core PC drops to 2.7% by the March meeting, which we roughly expect, that's a whole lot of room for the Fed to presumably ease. But if they say, look, we like where inflation is headed, but labor market is still tight and consumer is still strong and the economy is fine and can function with this level of rates, that might be the policy error that ultimately causes a recession. We had Dan Greenhouse on last week. I brought this up. He wasn't concerned about it because there weren't enough data points to sort of back up my thesis. On the flip side, I know you're familiar with EY from SoFi. <laughs> you guys, you're, you're buddies, right? I mean, which oh, is, she's great. But Elizabeth is concerned. <laughs> you know, she's pointed out a number of times that the inversion of the yield curve is sort of the warning sign. It's when things re-steepen that you have to be concerned. Two-year versus 30-year, I think, flattened out earlier this week. Two's tens are probably, I don't know, 25 basis points-ish. Seemingly, you're going to flatten out at some point early this year. If we make it to February, however, which is a couple weeks away, it'll be the longest time in history of a inversion of this magnitude. My question to you is, should I be worried or are you sort of in the Dan Greenhouse camp? There's not enough data points to sort of back that up. I think the data points do suggest that the longer the yield curve stays inverted, the more the incentives change and eventually that causes a recession. Because if you think about what does an inverted yield curve do, prioritizes saving versus mm -hmm. investing. It discourages borrowing. And the longer that goes on, the more it slows the economy or maybe puts us into a recession. But there is also historical precedent for where the yield curve does stay flat or inverted for a period of time, but then it reinverts and it steepens out. And the one I'm thinking about in particular is 1995, where the Fed did pivot and the yield curve did steepen out. And of course, we didn't end up with a recession. I think that's the playbook that we seem to be following right now. And if that's the case, if it ends up being a rate cut just in time, then you can end up with a steeper yield curve and equities that end up being positive. We looked at this chart, Guy, where, you know, what the markets do leading up to the first rate cut and what do they do after mm -hmm. it. And I think everybody knows what they do leading up to it. They move higher. But after it, it's a little bit less certain. And there's a twofold scenario. Part of the time, equity markets continue to move higher. That was the 1995 scenario and a number of others. And part of the time, you end up with a 2001 and 2007 scenario where the markets go Isn't down. Isn't that the only part of the time we care about? Because I, I think about 1995, and I remember entering the market. I'd just gotten out of college, and I remember reading this comment by Fed Chair Greenspan about mm -hmm. irrational exuberance in the stock market, and then it proceeded to go up basically on average 30% of the year over the next five years. It was my entree into financial markets. But then, after I was getting like pretty comfortable with where my seat in the markets in 2000, everything, then we crashed. And not only did we crash, but we had a three-year bear market that took a war, a really bad war to bring us out of. And then it took years and years just to get back. And then there we are. We thought everything was all good. We had a housing bubble going on. We had a stock market bubble going on. And then we crashed again. And yeah. that one was really bad. That one almost took down the global economy as we it know it. Did. So I, 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 it's so funny that people want to talk about when we started cutting in, in the 90s and the different periods in which we did because we had long-term capital. We had the Asian debt credit. There was a lot of things going on there. Pretty funky period. I think the world we live in right now from a monetary policy standpoint, it's far more similar than these last two times, you know what I mean, where we've had these rate cutting cycles. And you could say we started to raise and then we pulled back in late 18. Why did we move there? Because the markets moved lower precipitously and then the Fed just got really easy again. So I don't know. I'm like, I'm troubled right now because I feel like there's a big disconnect between all the optimism that we talked about, these new technologies and the TAMs, and they really have powered the stock market. There's no doubt about that. But when I think about it, here we are. We're basically three trading weeks into the year yeah. right now. The markets are unchanged, but the equal weight S&P is down almost 3%, which I think is interesting. So we're getting back to the crowding into some of these bigger names. What could go wrong this year? And again, we're almost a month in here. We, we're going to know a lot more after we get some Q1 guidance, earnings guidance and the like 
here and maybe get a better sense of what the Fed is likely to do in the March meeting or so. But what could go wrong here? If you've been optimistic, you did not change course all of last year. And kudos yeah. to that. What could go wrong, Dan, and I like your point about the equal weight S&P. If you looked at the first week of the year, equal weight S&P was actually outperforming. And I really think for people to step back into this market and for them to be comfortable chasing this market, you do need to have more participation. If you look at the Magnificent Seven, the biggest tech stocks, and the percentage of the market cap that they are today, it's 28%. If you look at the crowding factor, you know, of course, it's everybody's favorite trade. But how much do you want to chase that with all that money market cash that you have? How much do you want to chase that when something is up 60, 70, maybe 80%? So I think investors are looking for better entry points, which would be small caps, which would be the equal weight S&P. But if that keeps on disappointing, then I don't know how much more room investors are going to make in their portfolios to chase after big tech. We're in the midst of an election cycle. The geopolitical risks that we talked about are out there seemingly growing by the day. Does any of these things factor into, at a certain point, I understand that they do, but also in the context of your work, sometimes you sort of have to discount a lot of these things because the market has a way of looking past them. Anything out there that concerns you? For now, we don't have to be worried about the elections just yet. (laughs) But there's two caveats for now and then what's going on under the surface. And I say for now because the markets really don't care about the elections until it's closer to the event. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the S&P, it ends up being positive 80 or 75% of the time in the nine months and the 12 months leading up to the election. And as the markets start to care about a month or three months out, and so I suspect this time will be no different, So in the meantime, we care about Fed, we we care about Fed policy and growth inflation and so forth. But the other reason that I think it could be quite interesting this time is what's happening underneath the surface. If this ends up being a Trump versus Biden election, and we can guess what sort of issues are likely to come to the forefront in the debates, it's taxes, it's tariffs, and it's tech. And so one of the interesting things that we did back when I was at JP Morgan, when we were doing this during the last election, we looked at the different baskets. For example, basket of stocks that have high domestic revenue exposure versus those that have high foreign exposure. And of course, under the Trump presidency, Mm -hmm. as we were discussing tariffs and, and trade, the domestic outperformance was spectacular. The other way to think about it, what happens with taxes? And again, you could look at the beneficiaries of low taxes versus high taxes, and there is a big divergence. That was a big divergence previously. And by the way, let's talk about tech, too. If you think about semiconductors, maybe, Dan, that's to your point, what could go wrong? Semis are so well positioned, but what if you have tariffs? What if you have export controls? What if you have higher taxes and combination of that? Oh, and what if you also have more tech scrutiny or tech regulation? I think that's a big risk out there that's not yet talked about. Yeah, it's interesting that you framed it that way. Again, let's just say, hypothetically, let's say Biden were to win the Trump taxes roll off, but the tariffs probably stay. Like when you think about that, and so those could have very different implications. Now under Trump, you would have maybe a push for more tax cuts and then maybe even more difficult tariffs. So there's a lot of things that again, will only become clear as we start looking at the polls, let's say in September and October, where investors want to start positioning. But you mentioned something about small caps really quickly as we were talking about the equal weight also. The small caps, Russell 2000 is down 7% from its recent high. Is that like a precursor for something that might be a little more difficult for domestically centered revenue bases, that sort of thing, higher cost of capital or higher cost to borrowing and the like? I don't think so at this point. I think it's more of the equal weight S&P kind of category and discussion. This rotation in the last week has been stunning. It's going back to what you know, which is tech and semiconductors. So I think small caps are just catching the fallen knife, so to speak, with none of the other sectors performing well as, as rates are rising. But I do want to go back just for a second to this differentiation between factors, investors should really be closely watching the polls. They should be watching the winning probabilities. And when you think about if uh, former President Trump ultimately does get the nomination, chances are we're going to know this in March after Super Tuesday. And so I'd be very carefully watching what does that foreign basket versus domestic basket do then? And there's different ways that investors may want to position around them. Anastasia, I'm disappointed. Are you familiar (laughs) with Martin Scorsese? Of course. He's been married five times. Dan, you may or may not know this. I was not familiar with that. His third wife was Isabella Rossellini. You know the name. (laughs) Yes. You do. You should know the name because her mother was Ingrid Bergman. So I'm disappointed that you didn't know who Ingrid Bergman was. Isabella Rossellini's a big fan of the show, by the way. Yeah, and she's going to be equal to Monday and Friday edition of the But I'm podcast. thrilled 
that you joined us for at least the third time, if not the fourth, because your insights are extraordinarily valuable to both us and our audience. So thank you for joining Thanks, us. Guys. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dan. When we come back, Danny Moses and I are going to chat. So stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to the On The Tape podcast, joined by the great, and he is great, Danny Moses, a bit of a soothsayer. And before we get to the big news of the week, of course, Nick Saban stepping down from the University of Alabama, Danny, there's been a lot happening, not only here in the United States, but around the world, specifically in Switzerland, Davos, where all the elites go. Clearly, I am not one of them, but what have you gleaned from some of the conversations out there. And how are you, Danny Moses? I'm good. I had a song in my head today. Let me hear it. You didn't open up with a song. Can, is that? No, let me hear your I song. Go? I don't want to be predictable. It's a little Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which I know you like. There's no way you I don't do. like them. It's Helplessly Hoping. Sure. Helplessly Hoping. There you go. Yeah. Her That's a great. Mm-hmm. hovers nearby. Right? Helplessly Hoping in this market in general that we're going to get a sign and, and we're hoping that the Fed's going to come to the rescue, right? We're hoping that these things are going to happen. And I'm just focused on fundamentals that are out there. I didn't see a lot of the stuff out there, Davos per se. I mean, Jamie Dimon, obviously front and center, Howard Lutnick front and center, people getting interviewed left and right, talking their book, talking about things and issues and all the stuff going on. But like a break, like a almost like an intermezzo between earnings and what's going on geopolitically, the fact that it's happening over there. But I'm more focused on basically this market is trading three cuts by six cuts, three cuts the Fed has told you they're thinking about doing it, six cuts the market is telling you on CME Fed Fund Futures. And so we just trade between the three and the six. That's what we do. The Fed eight cut expectations come down, we sell off, and as they go up, we buy the market. And I think that will be short-lived. When I say short-lived, it's going to matter, but I think it's going to start to matter less and less when people really see what's happening, get to focus on companies that are reporting. And I want to go up to touch on some of those companies that have reported because to me, bottom up will always win the day in the long run. And and that's what I'm really focused on. I want to get granular for sure. But before we do, I also want to make reference to the fact within the course of the last couple of weeks, you mentioned yields, you mentioned rate cuts. It feels as though the market got euphoric in the back half of last year into this year around the notion of, again, five, six rate cuts. Obviously, we saw where 10-year yields went, but very quietly, you've seen 10-year yields move some 30-something basis points higher. So now here we are sitting around, let's call it 4.1%-ish in the 10-year. I don't think a lot of people are taking that into consideration, and there's a resilience there. But this is moving the bond market augur anything, and I'll say this as well. Two's tens, people are concerned not for the inversion. The inversion is sort of the warning sign. Elizabeth Young talks about this all the time. It's when the re-steepening occurs is when things start to get dicey. And we've seen it in the forms of two-year versus 30-year, which I think now is flat. Two's tens still at a bit of a, obviously, inversion. But things are moving that way. Does that give you any reason for concern or any pause whatsoever? I really think it's where these the absolute rates are versus the yield curve at this moment. I mentioned last week that the last two times we've flirted with flattening, we're now, I think, 20 basis points inverted at this point, which is pretty flat considering we were at, what, 130, 140. 
The last two times we attempted to do this around 10 year was around 4% last spring when the banking crisis happened. And the 10 year was around 5% in October before Yellen came out and tried to change the tenor of treasury offerings. And both those times, the market sold off as we attempted to flatten and de-invert, as we say. And I actually believe, and people need to take another step back, that a normal 10-year yield is 5 to 6%. That's a normal number of what it's been historically. You shouldn't be scared that the 10-year yield runs higher. You should be scared the reason that the 10-year yields might be running higher. If you're a soft landing person and you think we're going to get through this, you shouldn't have a problem with the 10-year yields making their way to 5%. If you're a fiscal hawk or you're concerned about the funding of the U.S. government, you should be concerned. And I think, again, that's the point of deembarkation, as you would say, of how the, the people that really want to be, then if you start to think to yourself, I'm concerned that the credit worthiness of the United States of America, and that's why rates are going higher, that's the scary part, guy, to me. So- We'll see how this plays out. I think obviously the short end is going to continue to come in. And I do say, I do believe that once the Fed cuts rates, and I think the biggest difference of the three and six is this, once the Fed cuts, they're going nonstop. That's my belief. There's no cut and pause. They're cutting for a reason. And I think that they will sacrifice a little bit of inflation to try to help the economy is my belief. And so they can bluff all they want, but once they start, I think they roll. That will harken back to the early 1970s, if in fact that's the case. But we'll see. I mean, a lot of people don't want to draw that parallel. I do. And I think a lot of things are lining up for exactly that. But we talk about all these different factors of the market. And I'll tell you, again, we play this game on Fast Money. You and I do it every once in a while with Dan. Nathan, if you had told me this, what do you think would have happened? And you think about the geopolitical stuff that's been going on. We obviously had the elections in Taiwan. I think they were as expected but clearly they did nothing to ease the tension between China and Taiwan. Things seemingly, I don't want to say a ramping up, but the rhetoric seems to be turned up a dial by an increment each and every single day. That is being not taken into consideration, I think. And this stuff in the Red Sea, Danny, is in a word troubling because there doesn't seem to be any exit ramp right now. Yeah, to me, the China-Taiwan thing is going to heat up a little bit more. The parliament obviously itself went more pro-Chinese, I think, than the president itself. So I think that there's a little mix offset. there going on, check the balance offset. But that being said, we're already seeing rhetoric. And then in the Middle East, I just don't see how it gets any better. You know, for, forget about shipping and those issues, which hopefully are just transitory and they get the solve. But I, I, there's a potential bigger conflict here and it's really not being priced in. And, you know, gold is holding its own here, a little over 2000. It sold off a little bit on the Fed funds, futures pricing in fewer cuts. You had the Bitcoin ETF thing happened. The advent Bitcoin's gone straight down since then. You've had a, there's a lot of things going on. And the reason I mention those is I'm a big believer that geopolitically, if you get a lot of tensions, the gold should be moving higher. So I'm a big proponent there still. But yeah, it doesn't feel like it's getting any better. And guy, the one thing that keeps perplexing me the most, and I'm going to have to say that it's economic activity slowing down around the world, is oil. And to me, oil has a strong footing. Listen, we have the refilling of our SPR, I believe. I know it's slow going, but 70 kind of seems to be the number that we're adding, whatever it is, two to three million barrels, which isn't enough. We should be scooping up more to fill that back up. But I still love the energy stocks. I agree with that. And let's talk about energy real quick, because for example, the XLE is an ETF that people look at. It's obviously pretty heavily weighted for the names we all know and love. But now if you look at this trading around 80 bucks or so, the range for this, the last year, somewhere between 75 and 95 or so. So you could say, I don't know, maybe we're smack in the middle. I mentioned that because so many of the components of this, the important components in terms of valuation, if you can get excited about valuations for some of these technology companies, by definition, I think understanding you don't have nearly the growth, but the valuations around some of these energy stocks are compelling. But more importantly, Danny, the underlying fundamental stories are still intact, regardless of where the commodity seems to go. So I get it. Oil's been under pressure, but I think people are throwing out these energy stocks and I think they're making a mistake. I agree. I think the companies are much more efficient. Their balance sheets are much more efficient this time around. And historically, of course, if oil goes down, you sell energy if you're concerned. But again, I point out to the people that are bullish in the market. And if you're bullish on the market and you're bullish, I should say, on the economy, you have to own energy in your portfolio because you're not going to have a, a, a huge slowdown in some type of demand. You may have pockets, right, where, where China, we're seeing slowing. You're seeing the New York Empire Index and the Philly Index. I mean, they're terrible. Something doesn't jive here. This puzzle doesn't make sense right now. And it feels like a jigsaw puzzle with stuff all over the table that you can't see coming in, in, into view yet. But the certain things that you want to just start putting the pieces together, to me, are things like that and being able to own energy in your portfolio of dividend paying companies with extremely strong balance sheets, ability to do M&A, ability to buy back stock. The market's been so much about immediate gratification. And if a trade doesn't work in an hour or a day, you're wrong or you should get off of. No, 
you got to take be more patient with these type of investments and then it'll play out over time. Well, a couple things. I say this all the time. If War- Warren Buffett, obviously we all know who he is. We don't need to go down that road. He, his stake, Berkshire Hathaway stake in Occidental Petroleum, the symbol there is OXY, I believe is now up to 37% or so. Seemingly every time you pick your head up, he adds to his stake. It's just a matter of time, I think, before he probably owns the company outright. I only mention that because when Warren Buffett forays into other names and you get those filings, the knee-jerk reaction historically has been three, five, six percent higher, and then the continuation every time he adds to his position. And in terms of Occidental, this is a stock since I want to say he started his foray into the space, it's probably dead even flat, and it's actually maybe even underperforming not only the broader market, but the energy space. I only mention Oxy because he clearly sees something there. And it's anecdotal, I get it. But then on top of it, the M&A noise around Exxon, around Chevron and Cotton, all the different names, to me speaks to an industry and a group that people are just not paying enough attention to. I know you addressed it, but I think it's really important to point out there's a lot of interesting things going on in this space. Balance sheets have never been better. Operationally, they're probably at places they've never seen before in terms of productivity. And quite frankly, these have become the poster children for the ESG initiative. Some of these companies, some of the best ESG companies in the world. And I just find it interesting that the market is turning them away in favor of Again, a lot of the high flyers out there, Danny Moses. Let's get a little granular here. And something happened earlier this week. I think it was Wednesday after the close in the form of DFS. That's Discover Financial. Obviously catering to a different customer base, but that's not really the point. The point is their loan loss provision, what they see in terms of delinquencies, is growing, I think, faster than the market anticipated. Now, I mentioned DFS not to necessarily trade the stock, But the knock-on effects, what does it mean for potentially Capital One? What does it mean for American Express? And Danny Moses, what does it mean for the consumer as a whole? And I think there's some things you can glean from that. Let's focus on their credit card portfolio. And you always have delinquencies that lead to charge-offs, right? You can, obviously, that's the leading indicator for what's going to happen. And I want to focus more on charge-offs right now, put it in perspective. So in the late 90s, of course, when I saw the news this morning, who's the first person that I called is Vincent Daniel. There's nobody that knows this company better than him in the world. He's been modeling this thing literally since he got into the business. So I wanted to, him to put it in perspective. And I'm always egging him on for, is this the turning credit? Is this the turning credit? And it, it was worse than expected. And so in 1997, 98, 99, charge-offs ran around anywhere from 5 to 7%. It's like that. Obviously, during the financial crisis in 2010 and 11, they were up at 10%. But since that time period, they've been 2.5, 2.2. We haven't had to deal with anything for obvious reasons. And here we are now. They came in at 4.11 versus 3.52 last quarter, but then they gave guidance for a range of 4.9 to 5.3 for the rest of the year. When your costs go up in credit, obviously it has knock-on effects on everything that you do. You slow down your marketing spend, et cetera. So valuation aside for what it means to discover, which is now probably trading around 10 times earnings or somewhere when they're going to reboot earnings for 2024, to me, it's a signal of what we think has been coming and we've been seeing, which is the consumer, at least on the lower end of the spectrum, starting to get hit. And they make a lot of money on people carrying a balance and also paying their bills because they're carrying at 22, 23% right now. And so as those people start, so cap one will actually be the one we want to watch. And that's like a mix of all kinds of credit. And that'll be next week. So pay attention, definitely have the antennas up. And listen, the stock's down what, as we speak here, 10, 10% roughly or in that area ballpark. So it did caught the market off guard. No question about it, but maybe it caught the market off guard. But this is something I know that you've talked about for a while. And I've been concerned about, unfounded have been my concerns, but they're starting to come to fruition. And I'm glad you mentioned that guide for the balance of the year, because we've seen nothing close to a five handle in net charge offs for quite some time. To your earlier point, and you're potentially getting towards levels, which I think should be alarming. Now, people will say it's not a big deal. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but on the margins, a move from the low twos into the mid fours, low fives is significant, Danny Moses. And I think, again, it's the first potential crack in the consumer credit story. Let's not forget that these stocks or stocks like this can go trade at 0.5 times book. That's what it's gotten down to before. It's near two times book or not after today. It's probably dropping. So keep in mind, if we're just going to have a normal credit cycle, these are the type of things you will start to see. Nothing to be overly concerned about. Obviously, if you own the stock, you should be a little bit concerned here. But what does it tell us? And what is it telling us? And keep reading 
tea leaves for what's happening. And I just think it's uh, another data point to pay attention to. You're also taking a look at something that BlackRock did earlier this week. I think you're sort of fascinated by it. Obviously, a behemoth of a company, I think market cap wise, not huge, $120 billion or so dollars, but a very important company in terms of what we look at in our world. BlackRock made an acquisition. They've been partners with these guys at Global Infrastructure Partners for years, otherwise known as GIP. And they said they're going to acquire it this week for $12.5 billion. And what's really interesting was the Fink interview justifying it. And basically it was saying that, listen, we're running federal deficits. We have debt. It's global. It's not just in the U.S. Who's going to fund a lot of these projects? And remember, these guys at GIP own like Gatwick Airport, I think Sydney Airport. So their infrastructure plays to a degree. It makes a lot of sense. And so if private capital can come in and replace public capital, which is what the trends that they see, which it's hard to knock that thought process, then it's probably a good acquisition. So give BlackRock credit. But to me, it's a wake up call. I'm like, you know what? Not the end of the world if private funding money comes in to fund what the public can't. So just to me, it was a little bit of a wake up call. I don't think it was a huge shocker. Like I said, they've been partners for years, but something I think that's probably a pretty good move on. To your point, though, it speaks to the efficiencies of our markets and people stepping in when they sense opportunities. And that's probably a positive thing. When I saw that, I took notice as well. But it speaks to, again, if government's not going to handle it, these companies come in and step in. It's something to think about there. I saw something, by the way, we had Steve Eisman on Fast Money, as you know, a couple of weeks ago. And I mentioned U.S. debt to GDP is probably, I don't know, it's approaching 140% or so. Right now, our debt is $34 trillion and seemingly growing exponentially by the day. And he didn't seem all that concerned about it. I only mention that because I saw earlier this week, Danny, I think debt to GDP in China, at least what they're reporting, it's probably worse, is approaching 300%. So you can look at this one of two ways. You can be really concerned about China, or you could say, wait a second, the US at 130% is not a big deal at all. We have a lot more runway. How do you view this entire thing? We're in uncharted territories. We're, we're supposed to be the world's leader in capital. We're supposed to be the world's leader in everything. And we've printed our way for a period of time now, for 13, 15 years, obviously unforeseen, some things were unforeseen and we had to do the right thing as far as COVID and getting people back on their feet. But I don't see a situation here where we're going to stem the tide here. We're going to run a north of a $2 trillion deficit this year. And we have all these funding needs and we're paying higher coupon. It's just going to feed on itself. And there is no debt ceiling until January, 2025. You could say that's bullish for the markets because we're just going to spend our way. But to me, that's a little bit scary. So maybe we don't have to pay the piper today, Guy, but it's certainly something that I think we saw a little glimpse of what can happen, obviously, when people are concerned about funding costs and, and what it might mean for the U.S. government to continue to fund themselves. We saw it in England a year and a half ago at this point. Was that the fall of 22? So you saw the fiscal issues that affect. So you have to incorporate that into your thought process, into the markets. But if your thought process continues with no one has faith in the U.S. credit worthiness, then we have bigger issues. Of course, it's an issue. Of course, it's an issue for government programs. Of course, it's an issue for everybody. Something people should pay attention to, whether or not the they're invested in the stock market or not, it's an important aspect that's going to affect their lives. You did a great podcast with Ivy Zellman. It dropped this past Monday. I encourage people to go back and listen to it. She's a legend in the world of everything, real estate, home, that entire world. She can sort of encapsulate the whole thing at a very high level. But something happened this week. There's a publicly traded company, MDC Holdings, the announcement that they were acquired by, I believe, a Japanese company whose name I probably can't pronounce. But what are your thoughts on that. And I encourage people to go back and listen to the podcast that dropped this past money with you and Ivy. Yeah, Ivy's the best. Like I said, I've known her for 20 years almost at this point. And there's no one that understands from A to Z in terms of housing and everything that impacts it. And so I called her. I said, what, what are your thoughts on MDC? She's like, they've been trying to sell the company a long time. It's older management. They sold it for 1.4 times book. It's pretty regional in terms of Denver area, right? From the acquisition, obviously, this isn't the first time this company in Japan has made an acquisition. They made an acquisition in Utah, I think, like in 2017. So good on them. But 1.4 times book really doesn't spill over into the rest of the group, which certainly is trading north of that. Another name she thought if there was going to be a target could be something like a Beezer, obviously, if it's out there. So not a great read through, but she said this has been a long time coming. This company has been on the block. So yeah. And Beezer, the symbol there is BZH, Beezer Homes. I think it's a $32 stock. I think the market cap is either side of a billion dollars. It's one of these names that if you look at it over the last 15 or so years, it really hasn't done a damn thing. This was everyone's darling, by the way. You go back into 2006, 2007, you could probably wax poetic about 
the huge run-up in Beezer Homes, BZH, and then the subsequent fall in the aftermath of everything that you and all your friends saw of before the great financial crisis. And I think I want to make one thing clear. It's funny. People go out and buy the XHB and they think they have exposure to housing. Some have more land. Some are focused on new homes. All very different. You can create a lot of alpha, make a lot of money by being long certain names and short certain names in that sector. And so again, I would go back and listen. Because of what happened in the financial crisis, people view builders as the epicenter. It's a different situation this time because these mortgages don't exist. They don't, you don't have these two and three-year arms that were comprising a lot of the mortgage market that, that fueled the housing market this time. But people do watch it. And you can't predict the way that people's behaviors are going to change and that they're going to use their homes as offices. No one would have had that. And she just does a great job looking through it. But you know, it's the most interesting sector, Guy, because a lot of people invest in the market also own a home. So they have both personal reasons to know what's going on in the housing industry and then professional reasons to know what's going on. No question about it. And I listened to it. I thought it was great. And we're going to do more of that with you, Danny, where you bring in these special guests and do these podcast drops. So be on the lookout for that. We will obviously alert you folks when we do it. Taiwan Semi, I've said this, I think think you probably agree, one of the five, six, seven most important companies in the world for a myriad of different reasons. Basically, a big customer of theirs, obviously, is Apple. So you get a lot of read-throughs. As we sit here, they reported on Thursday, making a new 52-week high north of $110, nowhere near the all-time high, I think, that we saw, I want to say, January of 2022 or thereabouts. But a stock that's performed relatively well. I didn't think the quarter was particularly good, but I thought the guide obviously gave people a lot of encouragement, and it seemingly is giving that next leg for the semiconductors. This is exactly what the semis needed at the right time. Go back to the NVIDIA. I will not compare NVIDIA to anything that I've ever seen in my life, but just in terms of all of a sudden upping their guidance, much more dramatic than Taiwan Semi, but give an excuse to own growth in this environment and you will take it. I also think it was an overhang from the Taiwan election. People were very nervous of what the outcome was going to be. And again, we talked, we opened the show talking about geopolitics. That's not solved, but I think people were waiting to do anything in the name until that happened. So check that off, good or bad, that, that happened, right? The election happened, obviously, in Taiwan. Now it's catch-up time for some of these names. So will it sustain itself? I don't know. It's a very cyclical sector. It always has been. Semiconductors, it became secular with this AI craze. And that remains to be seen is how long can this secular trade stay that way when it starts to cycle on itself? I don't know. But I certainly wouldn't stand in the way of those names being short any of them at this point. Aftermath of some of these bank earnings, you had a huge run in JP Morgan. I think it made an all-time high, only to give it all back. You can look at a JP Morgan chart. You'll see definitely the beginnings of a bit of a double top. But you have some thoughts on Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Now, I'll say this about Morgan Stanley. That was, again, everyone's darling into 2021. But since sort of the fall of 2021, this is a stock that can't get out of its own way in the wake of what's been obviously a pretty good broader market. And then obviously Goldman Sachs, a bit of a different business, but obviously in the same world, it's had a decent run. It's seemingly is stalling out. Again, not anywhere near its all-time high. I want to say late summer of 21, early fall. But thoughts on the earnings we heard from those banks? Yeah, Goldman did better in fixed income and equity trading than Morgan Stanley did worse. And that was the one area. Obviously on the advisory side, things have started to pick back up, right? And then on the high net worth side, Morgan Stanley had a really good part of their quarter was in there. And that's different than what Goldman Sachs has, obviously. And so the makeup was a little bit different. I think people were pleasantly surprised that Goldman seems to be getting into their groove again. And Morgan Stanley, listen, Gorman's gone. So here again, give me an excuse to, to not own it. Maybe people that are a little bit concerned. And I want to talk about they settled this block trading issue. This is a year that's been going on for over three years. And let me just simplify this. If a Blackstone or an Oak Tree comes to one of these large brokers and they want to sell a public company that's in their portfolio, they say, hey, what do you think the appetite is for XYZ? And what Morgan Stanley was doing, whether they admitted wrongdoing or not, I don't know, but they paid $250 million as a fine, $100 million in ill-gotten gains, is they were leaking what stock was coming to certain investors so they could get ahead of it and short it. And then they would know Morgan Stanley that they could commit X amount of capital in order to get this quote trade-off. So what did that do? That obviously probably hurts the price for the sellers, right? Because it was driven down a little bit ahead of it. And it's not legal. You can't leak that information. So as a sidestep to that, they did pay a $250 million fine. Who pays for it? The shareholders obviously pay for that fine, but neither here nor there. That's secondary in terms of the bigger notion of the quarter. And listen, we're going to lap some easy comps here. If we do have M&A continue and the IPO market does heat up. These are names that you're going to probably want to own. So barring a huge market sell-off and some catastrophe, I think you can own these things. And I would not be short them, guys.
There's a lot going on with Blackstone, and you start to get into these letter things like CREs and B-R-E-I-Ts and all the things that you studied at length 16 or so years ago. I don't want to say they're rearing their ugly head again because that's not genuine. That's a bit of a hyperbole. Things are happening in that world, and I think the news cycle, people are seemingly picking up on this now. Yeah, well, Blackstone Re lost money for the first time in the quarter. Like it was down like 0.5%. So they don't earn a fee. The hurdle rate, I think, is like 5%. So they're not making money on what's now 62 billion in assets. For everybody that kind of remembers, they the slowed redemptions down. Right. They the gates. So they do allow redemption of some kind. They have slowed. Obviously, when you can control them, they can slow. But I think, like I said, the assets have dropped from around 80 to 62 billion or something. And there's still issues, I'm sure, in that portfolio. And I don't think this one is in the portfolio. It was already written down anyway, but 1740 Broadway, which was a property they bought back in, I think, 2014 for $600 million, is literally written off on their books to zero at this point because the equity in that building is obviously worthless. And again, a small glimpse into commercial real estate doesn't move the needle for a Blackstone. It's not a reason to go sell the stock. The point is that there's a lot, and this is a particular property, a B office property that had a major tenant in it that left 1740 Broadway. But just as an example, I, I still think we're at the beginning stages of seeing kind of these commercial real estate issues. A lot of people have been bringing that up, and that's clearly something to watch in the first half of this year. The other thing that I want to talk about, and I know you have strong views on this, and I'm not looking to play stock market necessarily, but I don't think it was coincidence that we got to the zenith of all the news around listings for Bitcoin, and that basically created a short-term top in terms of whatever you want to call it, the commodity, the security, whatever Bitcoin is. I think we traded up to 49,000-ish a week or so ago, only to be sitting here today around that 41,500 mark. So I ask you to sort of handicap, will we look back early January 2024 around the time of all this news as when as good as it got for Bitcoin? Is there that potential? Because I want to tell you something, pretty much the same thing happened to gold with the GLD many years ago. Yeah, I'm sure there was some gamesmanship ahead of it. And what you're seeing is BlackRock and Fidelity, I think, getting the bulk of the flows. And I think that's people are going to feel safe facing those two companies, I think, as I mentioned that before. And so it'll play out. Listen, it's great that people now have a better access to it. I think that's great. I think Coinbase will suffer as a result. I've never been a crypto bull, so I'm not going to be the one here who says, oh, yeah, it's going to go down to 25 or 30,000. I think it's held its way. It's shown a lot of strength and a lot of controversy that's happened in the sector. Good on them. But again, like I said, who wins in this are the quant traders and high frequency traders that are helping balance these ETFs. And no good deed goes unpunished. You're now having these 2X inverted bearish ETFs are going to pop up now. So I'm concerned for people that market structure is not set up correctly for an asset that can be this volatile. We forget can drop 5,000 in a day, up 7,000. And I think that's the part I think that we're going to have to get through. There's a five-letter stock, and typically we don't foray into this, but the market cap allows us to do something. It's called Flutter Entertainment, and the symbol is PDYPY. I think it's UK-based. That's the ADR. That thing has been off to the races. You've talked about that before, but it probably has ramifications for the draft kings of the world. You've been talking about this space at length now for quite some time. And a lot of these stocks, which were left for dead, quite frankly, if you go back and look, are getting off the mat in a major way. And that started early in 2023, and it's continuing early this year, Danny Moses. Yeah, so it's Flutter. It's the old Patty Power symbol on the ADR, PDY, PY, but it's FanDuel. And they are actually listing on the New York Stock Exchange January 29th. It's going to be a lot of fanfare. And you're right, it is a big company. They're the biggest gambling company. And their margins increased dramatically. Why? Because of parlay betting. And in November, they had some big losses, what they call better luck or customer-friendly sports results, as they quote it. But you know, at the end of the day, who wins, guy? It's the bookies that win over time. And so that was a great trading opportunity. The stock, I wouldn't say is overly cheap, but it's much cheaper than DraftKings on an EBITDA basis. So I think you're starting to see people set up as to own this thing into its listing in New York. And again, this is a space that's now profitable. This is a space that people need to watch. It's a great driver of tax revenues. Maybe not so great for the consumer or gambler. There's probably losing on them, but people are gambling more in-game live wagering, higher margin, parlays, higher margin. That trend continues. I think you got to own these things for the foreseeable future. Before we get into your picks, this is now the second round of the playoffs. You had a vision that came to you in the form of potential Super Bowl matchup, and you thought somehow the Lions of Detroit could find their way to Las Vegas playing the Ravens of Baltimore. And in order to put that bet on, you were given a tidy sum in terms of odds. 
However, it seems as though that wasn't in fact the case. And it's created a bit of a disturbance that the major networks and news services are picking up. Speak to that. Big disturbance in the force. So that was a uh, January 2nd. My friend from Jacksonville was on a plane and he couldn't put it in. He goes, you got to go look online for Baltimore to beat Detroit was listed at 500 to one in the Super Bowl. This was right after the regular season. So we hadn't even started the playoffs yet. And if, if you look in what it was for Detroit to beat Baltimore, it was only 60 to one. The thing was off. Anyway, we put in 50 bucks together and that was the most it would let you bet. I tried to put in a thousand on it on a whim. And then I was involved with this company, WagerWire, and they tweeted it out and all this stuff. And so it, it fed on itself. Hard Rock ends up canceling my bet, but not canceling the bet in New Jersey, only in Florida, because there's no competition in Florida because it's a monopoly for Hard Rock. So Washington Post picked it up, ran an article, and uh, I think there's going to be more press coming to it. And you know what's going to happen, guy? It is going to be probably Baltimore, Detroit, because I have a bet that's not going to be worth anything. They would have paid $25,000. So there you go. So Speaking as we reach the second round, your record, which was 27 and 24, headed into the playoffs, is now 29 and 24. So you're getting sort of like where you could say, okay, Danny, not that bad. So you're going to try to I think, if my, if I'm not mistaken, you're probably going to take a look at all four games here. But that's up entirely up to you. Last week, I said that the Chiefs were my pick of the year. I said of all the five stars that have given out, this is this is my favorite one. And so it played out. I actually had literally nailed every single game. I'm not touting. I've, I've lost plenty of games before on the weekends, which does not bode well for the divisional rounds. I must say, guys. So. I think C.J. Stroud is one of the best athletes I've ever seen in my entire life. And he put on another show. And give me Houston going into Baltimore, getting nine and a half points. I, I think they're going to keep it close. I get it. Baltimore's basically had two weeks of buys. They sat their players two weeks ago and then sat this week. I get it. But Houston's on a roll. I really love the team. I love the coach, D'Amico Ryan. So give me Houston plus nine and a half. And then I have to pick this game. That's the first game of the weekend. The last game of the weekend is Buffalo and Kansas City. In Buffalo's two and a half, I'd like to see it get to three and take the Chiefs plus three. Teams face each other a lot. This is Mahomes' first road playoff game he's ever had to play. I think that Kansas City could win this game outright, but I got to take the underdog in this game. Like I said, I don't bet against I don't bet against Mahomes really when he's an underdog. And so give me Kansas City. Hopefully you can get the three, but right now I see it sitting at two and a half. Danny Moses, your track record speaks for itself. I enjoy our conversations and I look forward to the aftermath of what's going to be a very interesting weekend in the league where they play for pay. We'll see you next week. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.